Today on Blue 58, after starting the season in a bit of a rough spot, the Packers' offensive line has grown into a noteworthy asset. One big reason why? Young players who embody the definition of homegrown talent. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Before we dive into the things I would like to talk about tonight... I want to remind you about our ongoing charity drive. Check the link in your show notes or show description, whatever, and uh, find your way over to thepowersweep.com to find instructions on how to donate to one of the four charities we are supporting this year. Your generous donations have already brought in more than $200 in support for these charities. I'm thrilled with that already. We are thrilled for every bit of support that we get. Just keep those donations coming in. You've got until December 31st to do it, but no time like the present, so go ahead and dive in whenever you are ready. would really appreciate it, and I know these charities would as well. As I said in the intro, I wanted to talk for a little bit about the the Packers' offensive line. Because I think I've been about as critical as anybody of their offensive line performance, particularly early in the season, but things have kind of turned around a little bit for this line for a few different reasons. First, they've, I think, have just gotten healthy. David Bakhtiari, until his appendix did whatever it did, had been going through a pretty healthy stretch here. He'd been playing as well as he's been throughout the entire season. I mean, when healthy, nobody ever has an issue with David Bakhtiari. So uh, he's he's been really good on top of that. Elton Jenkins just passed the one-year mark since his, his knee injury in the 2021 season. That, of course, is a factor. But on top of that, you're getting some really noteworthy contributions from some young players. So on balance... This seems like a pretty good unit. And the numbers back that up too. Nobody thinks the Packers are a great run blocking team, but from a pass blocking perspective, they've been fantastic this year. They're Pro Football Focus's third highest graded pass blocking team. And according to ESPN's pass block win rate stat, they are the fourth best. Uh, by the the team level stats in the league, there are also some bright spots uh, on the offensive line for run blocking. Uh, Yash Nyman, just for example, is ESPN's top graded tackle in run blocking win rate. He wins eighty four percent of his run blocking efforts, which is I think higher than you would expect for Yash Nyman, considering the the book on him is that he's basically an athletic pass blocker. The point is, in totality, I think this offensive line has turned out to be pretty good. Specific-wise, there are some issues. Jake Hansen early in the season was a problem for the Packers. Royce Newman did not have his best start to his second season. John Runyon Jr., even at times, is a little bit inconsistent. Josh Myers, too, has had some rough stretches this year. But in general, it's been pretty darn good. And I think a lot of that is because of some of the young core players to this offensive line. Three young guys in particular have stepped up this year to play bigger roles than they've played in the past, and it's really stabilized the offensive line. And without Zach Tom and John Runyon Jr. and Yash Nyman, I'm not sure where this offensive line would be. Because you take out any one of those three guys and you're looking at some serious depth issues on the offensive line, a, a group that has already had some pretty serious depth issues this year. Let's start with Zach Tom, a rookie fourth-round pick who I think by all accounts is still a little bit light to be playing offensive line in the NFL, nevertheless is holding his own. He has started games for the Packers at both left tackle 
uh, and left guard. He's also filled in for a little bit at right guard. One of those starts at left tackle was on very, very short notice. I got a call just basically when the inactives went out that David Bakhtiari wouldn't be playing, kind of a surprise to everybody, and Zach Tom gets inserted into the lineup as a result. I don't know how much more you could really ask for from uh, from a fourth-round pick. That I suppose we should note that David Bakhtiari himself did start at left tackle from the word go uh, at left tackle due to an injury to Brian Bulaga way back in his rookie season. But um, Zach Tom starting at two positions I think is, is right up there in terms of uh, how impressive that accomplishment is as well. John Runyon Jr. has started at both left and right guard, really moving over to the right side with no complaint uh, after the Packers decided they needed to move Elton Jenkins from right tackle to left guard just to get him at a place where he was a little bit more comfortable. Runyon steps in there on the right side, basically continues just as he has been on the left side. Impressive stuff from him. And really, he's been just kind of the same player since he was getting reps as a rookie. Steady. Not spectacular, does have some limitations to his game, but really not a lot to complain about there either. Solid and reliable, week in and week out. Put him up for a thousand snaps every single year. That's John Runyon Jr. so far. And then Yash Nyman, a former undrafted free agent, starting on both the left and right side this year. The story on his development has been nothing short of remarkable. Always had all the athletic talent in the world, but was undrafted for a reason, despite being a a fairly long-term starter in college. He comes to Green Bay, rides the bench basically as a rookie, a practice squad player, got some some late-season looks that year, but just continues to plug along and plug along and get better and get better and get better, and now you hardly think about him when he's out on the field. All told, you've got a fourth-round rookie, a former sixth-round pick, and a former undrafted free agent, filling major holes for the Packers on the offensive line. If Zach Tom can't go, the Packers are probably starting Royce Newman again on the offensive line. Same for for Runyon. If he can't go, it's probably Royce Newman again on the offensive line. And at this point, it's probably the same for, uh, for Jenkins. If he can't go on the right side, it's probably Royce Newman out there. They've solved so many depth issues with just these three pretty lightly regarded players. I mean, all three of those guys are day three picks, yet here they are with the Packers thriving again. And I don't know what you think overall about the uh, the Adam Stenovich move to offensive coordinator. I'm not sure. We we honestly, we've talked about this before. We don't really know what his his role is in terms of the game planning and things like that, other than overseeing a lot of the run game stuff. But he's been a big part of making this offensive line go these last few years. And the Packers have tried some weird stuff on the offensive line. It hasn't always worked. We've talked again and again and again about their decision in the divisional round game last year to start Billy Turner on the left side instead of on the right side and leaving Yash Nyman on the bench. And the Packers should rightly be called out for that kind of stuff. But they've gotten a lot of these things right, too. And they've moved a lot of people around and tried some unusual things. I mean... Just look at what they've done with Elton Jenkins. Yeah, that that's part of his skill set as a player, but that the Packers were willing to try and do all of those different things says, one, a lot about the Packers, and two, a lot about where the NFL is in terms of trying new things now. 
those are both good developments, but especially good for the Packers being willing to try and succeed with some different things while developing some of these these young players into quite remarkable players. So I think that is something that I wanted to spend some time out on making sure that we credited the Packers offensive line for the improvement that they've shown. Yes, they did wait a little bit long, the coaching staff, to make some of these changes. But the changes have ultimately worked, and they've helped stabilize a unit that was in rough shape early in the 2022 season. Want to give a quick shout out to our Discord server. We were talking about this um, throughout the day today and talking about a couple other topics, one of which we're going to address here in a second. Uh, But again, the Discord is a great place to hang out if you are interested in talking with really smart Packers fans from all around the world. They have a big hand in shaping stuff that ends up on this show. And if you would like to be a part of it, head to, uh, to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Contribute any dollar amount per month and you will have your own invitation to that group as well. We would love to have you and uh, love to add your voice to that conversation. It's a, it's a great place to be, a great place to hang out. Since it is the bye week, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about a topic that isn't necessarily as focused on this year's team was doing some reminiscing today, partly because I had to spend a lot of time in the waiting room, whatever you call it, of a um, auto repair facility today. Got the fun experience of finding out that one of my tires on my SUV was in undrivable condition, kind of out of the blue today, which, well, one thing led to another and I was walking out of there with four new tires. We needed them anyway, but it was not what I had planned for today. Nevertheless, Ended up spending some time there, was reminiscing about some older Packers stuff, and was thinking about Julius Peppers. And that got me thinking about some of the the most impressive players that I've seen in my time as a Packers fan. Impressive, I think, is the right word. Because if you think about great players, you can have a lot of different definitions there. People can be impressive for different reasons, too. But I got thinking about a list of the 10 or so most impressive players that I've seen in my career. And I thought I would, well, in my career, in my time as a a Packers fan, and I thought I would talk through them because I think that's, it's a fun thing to think about. What makes a player impressive to you? What makes them special as a player? What makes people stick in your memory? You can look at this list as, you know, my 10 favorite players, my 10 most enjoyable players to watch. I'm not I'm not sure exactly what the definition is, but when I think of guys who are impressive for one reason or another, these are the names that I've come up with. So let's start with Julius Peppers. Pretty short stint with the Packers, and I'm trying to not not going to go stat heavy at all, even if I mention any stats at all. That, that will um, kind of be an outlier here. But three years with the Packers, 14, 15, and 16. But in those three years, really showed, I think... One, a, an interesting phenomenon in sports and, and talking about athletes. And two, what it looks like when someone lives up to that method of talking about, about athletes. There's this idea in sports um, where certain guys are basically cursed with greatness. Guys that are so physically talented that pretty much no matter what they do, someone is going to be dissatisfied with them. If you want to look for an example of this in a different sport, look at Shaquille O'Neal in the NBA, a guy who is so physically gifted, so physically dominant, that it seems like there is no ceiling on what he can do. And if you look at some of those runs that he had in the playoffs with the Lakers, 
he might have been approaching that ceiling. Look at his stats on basketball reference sometime from the the Lakers three-peat run in the early 2000s. It will boggle your mind just how dominant he was as a player. Yet there were always questions about his effort, you know, his conditioning, his, you know, free throw shooting, things like that. People wanted him to be better than he was already just because they could see how physically talented he was. Julius Peppers is that sort of player. Six foot seven, what, 290, 300 pounds, can still run like a deer, jump like a basketball player because he was. And yet it felt like he didn't always have that on a play-by-play basis. People always talked about his effort, which is a heck of a thing to say when you're not out there getting cut block or double teamed or crack back blocked on a play-in, play-out sort of basis. And yet Pepper is still well advanced into his career by the time he arrived in Green Bay, was doing things like in 2014, intercepting a a tipped pass or a kind of a, a wobbly pass from um, Christian Ponder and racing 40-some yards back for a touchdown, crossing the field in Lambeau, outrunning uh, Jarek McKinnon and Cordero Patterson on his way to the end zone for a touchdown. Just think about the things that go into that play. Pepper is dropping into coverage, making a catch, running however many yards just to score, outrunning a running back and a receiver to get there. I mean, how many players could even dream of doing that? Much less a guy at Pepper's size. He's got to be on my list just because of that sort of thing. It's it's the sort of thing that when you think back on the great players that you were able to see in your time as a fan, that will always jump out because there are so few people who could do something like that. Now, jumping to the opposite end of the spectrum, David Bakhtiari comes to mind as a player who didn't necessarily have some of the physical advantages that Julius Peppers did, but succeeds anyway. I think it's fair to say that Bakhtiari has grown into his body in his time as a a member of the Green Bay Packers, because when he arrived, there were serious conversations, you know, among the people who watched the draft about whether or not he should be switching to guard in the NFL. Because if you look at his physical measurables, he's a little bit on the small side for a bookend tackle. And yet, I don't think anybody would argue with the results that he's put up over his career. He has been as good a tackle as anybody in the league during the time he's been in the NFL. And that's because he's so technically precise that he gets away with being smaller and lighter than a lot of other tackles in the league. And it's David Bakhtiari that's made me appreciate and want to learn more about offensive line play in the NFL. He's just so precise as a player. And he, just the way that he is able to get out of his stance, uh, sets him apart among offensive linemen. Watch sometime when the Packers are playing on the road and they have to use a silent count, how David Bakhtiari comes out of his his stance. I was talking about this with a couple other Packers writers' friends. I, I argued that Bakhtiari should probably be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame alone just because of how he comes out of his stance uh, as an offensive lineman in silent count situations. Because what Bakhtiari will do is time the snap by looking down the line to his right, and then before the ball is snapped, lip, whip his head back around to his left as he's coming out of his stance, kick-stepping back, getting ready to take on a pass rusher. 
He's coming out of his stance almost blind, and yet it's almost never a disadvantage for him. He does so many other things like this that just set him apart as a player despite not having a lot of the physical tools that other elite offensive linemen have. He makes you want to learn more about how he gets it done. And that, I think, is a wonderful quality to have in in a player. Devontae Adams is kind of in that category, too. Compared to the average person, Adams has otherworldly speed and otherworldly physical tools. Yet compared to a lot of NFL receivers, I mean, put him up against Christian Watson. Even at his very, very best, Devontae Adams has no shot, none whatsoever, of beating Christian Watson in a foot race. His tremendous vertical leap aside, Adams cannot reach as high as Watson can because he's considerably shorter. And yet, Devontae Adams overcomes that by being the consummate technician as a route runner. I don't know if I've ever seen another receiver quite like him on any team. DeAndre Hopkins is close. But Adams, he never has to make the contested sort of catches that Hopkins does because he's just always open. He's just always getting into the secondary. And I think it's going to go down as one of the great unfortunate things in Packers history that they were unable or he was unwilling or whatever happened there. They couldn't bring him back for the the final act of his career because he should have been a start to finish Green Bay Packer. And yet we're going to have to watch him finish things out with the, with the Raiders. A joy to watch for different reasons than many other great receivers are, but still incredible to watch as well. On his heels, I've got to mention Jordy Nelson. And I think looking at Adams and Nelson together, you've got a good example of why of, of why football is worth watching. Because I think in the NBA, the game has gr- grown a lot more homogenized. Everybody kind of plays the same style or seems to. In the NFL, you can still succeed with different body types, playing different sorts of offenses, approaching the game differently as a different sort of player. And if you look at Adams and Nelson, two great receivers, two completely different playing styles. Nelson was the the great sideline receiver, but like a deep sideline receiver. Adams, the short and intermediate game, incredible. Adams, or Nelson, deep shots, sideline stuff all day long. The speed, the route running deep, And the body control along the sideline, I think, are unparalleled in the time that I've been following the Green Bay Packers. He is just tremendous, was just tremendous for the things that he could do along the sideline. For a long time, Aaron Rodgers would intentionally throw a ball like a yard out of bounds. And Nelson could come down with it consistently. An actual play for the Packers was to throw the ball to Jordy Nelson outside the field of play. And it was essentially a guaranteed completion because Nelson had the body control, the timing, and the skill to make it happen. I I don't like to make player-to-player comparisons, so I don't know if he's better than Adams or Adams is better than him. I don't think it really matters because they're both great players and we don't really get to compare 
Nelson to Adams anyway because of a catastrophic knee injury that Nelson had that really robbed of us robbed us of seeing what he could be down the stretch in his career. But I think it's worth talking about their different skill sets and how they succeeded in different ways without making it an ultimate judgment on who was better. It would depend what you want from your offense um, if you're trying to make the call there. Sticking on the offensive side of the ball, we will jump over back to defense here in a second. I want to talk about a great Packers running back, Amon Green. I was thinking about Christian Watson uh, relative to other great Packers offensive players recently, and I, I made the comparison that I think other than Amon Green, Watson is the only other player who felt like wherever he got the ball, whatever circumstances he got the ball, there was still a chance he could score on any given play. And Green was like that. During his tremendous 2003 season, it seemed like he was scoring a touchdown or going on a long run of some kind on every other play. Running, receiving, it didn't matter. If you just got him the ball, a good thing would happen. And during the early 2000s running back boom, when you had guys like Priest Holmes and Ladanian Tomlinson, Amon Green was right there. And I think I'm I'm sad for younger younger football fans who didn't get to see that era of football because the the running back who just gets 300 350 touches a year is kind of a dinosaur now. There there are so few of them. But in the early 2000s that was still a big part of how football was played. And you had guys that were just super duper stars who were carrying incredible workloads for their teams and yet succeeding at very, very high levels. Holmes, Tomlinson, Green, Marshall Falk up there too. So, so many players, so many great players doing incredible things. And Green was right there with, with any one of them, seeming like he could do anything on the field at any time. Brett Favre deserves a mention along those same lines too. Now, Brett Favre has been in the media recently for a host of other reasons. Let's put it like that. And since he left Green Bay, there's that kind of story has been more the rule than the exception. And for you, if that overshadows um, what he did as a player, I understand it. I don't know if, if I'm ever going to be able to to get there as a as a just as a person, just because of what he do, did in my formative time as a football fan. And I think I kind of like my memories like that. Not to, you know, talk about anything that he allegedly did or has been accused of, because I think that's that's a different conversation and evaluating far of the, the person is a different conversation too. But what he did in his absolute physical prime and his peak as a player is almost so long ago now that you almost remember him as a, a superhuman sort of figure. And I think that's the best way to think about Brett Favre as a player, too. Because if you start dissecting his game statistically and stuff like that, it starts to look pretty bad pretty quickly. But a big part of that is the era in which he played. So I think if you just remember him as that almost sort of anything-is-possible player, that's the best way to do it. The play that always sticks out the most to me isn't from the Monday night game after his dad died, isn't from the Super Bowl. It's from a random road game in that 1996 season where the Packers are playing in the old Seattle Kingdome. And Brett Favre is 
flush from the pocket. He's rolling to his left with his right shoulder facing the, the goal line. The Packers are maybe five yards out. And Favre sees a receiver in the end zone who's open, and rather than scoring up his legs and making a conventional throw, he just kind of flips it backhand, almost a no-look pass into the end zone. It's caught. It's a touchdown. And I remember thinking as a kid, just wondering, how is something like that possible? How do you get to a point where something like that is possible? And the conclusion really is that you can't. It's something that you can either can do or you can't do. And it was something that Brett Favre could do, and he did it. And I think seeing stuff like that makes me appreciate Aaron Rodgers, too. Early in the existence of the power sweep, I wrote a piece about how, I think it was Greg Cosell, the analyst, didn't understand what made Aaron Rodgers great. He was begging or chiding or criticizing Rodgers for not playing on schedule more. Something that's always been something um, that it's always been something that people have criticized Rodgers for, holding the ball too long. And there is some merit to that. But Cosell specifically was talking about how this made Aaron Rodgers a worse quarterback relative to some of the other greats like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And it showed that uh, Rodgers had not mastered the fundamentals of, of playing the quarterback position. I would argue that stuff like that shows that Rodgers hasn't just mastered the fundamentals, he has surpassed them. Rodgers, to me, is like a great jazz musician. He knows he is able to play in a way that nobody else can because he's mastered all of the other things that everyone else already does. To be able to do some of the stuff that Rodgers does, you have to have such an incredibly high-level understanding of what is possible that you're able to surpass what other people think is possible. Making reads that no one else thinks are possible. Uh, Remembering things that no one else is able to remember. Understanding coverages in a way that few other people do. Rodgers does all of those things. And he does it in a way that is very different from how Brett Favre did it. Because if you talk with Brett Favre, it's clear that he, if, if you listen to what he says at least, it's clear that he does understand all the finer points of, of playing quarterback and how defenses work and how offenses work relative to defense. But Rodgers understands it in a different way. Favre is almost, it's almost like innate sort of stuff. He just knows it because he knows it. Rodgers is like a supercomputer. He understands and remembers everything that he's ever seen and is able to make decisions and reads as a result of that. It's a tremendous thing to be able to watch and it's been incredible to have that as a follow-up to Favre. Back on the defensive side of the ball, I think Rodgers to Charles Woodson is a good segue. Rodgers has talked many times about how Charles Woodson is one of the great players he's ever played with, and I, you know, I think you'd have a hard time disagreeing with that because Woodson understands the same, the game the same way that Rodgers did, except on the defensive side of the ball. He does this, the, a lot of the same sort of freelancing and um, improvisational sort of things that Rodgers does. But on defense, it gets him burned sometimes. It's the, the Rodgers equivalent of, you know, holding onto the ball too long or hunting for a big play because he knows it's there at the expense of an easy play. Woodson had some of those same sorts of tendencies. And yet as a defensive player, he was able to make a difference way, positively way more often than negatively. 
And that's something that I think a lot of lesser players try to do but are unable to get away with. If you tried what Woodson did, if you were the if you're the quarterback equivalent, or if you're a lesser player than say Aaron Rodgers and you're trying to do the off schedule stuff that Rodgers does, you never get on the field anyway. If you're doing the stuff that Woodson does, freelancing and things like that, you'll be out of the league in a hurry. But Woodson was so good, so physically talented that he was able to get away with it. And Woodson we do have to talk about those immense physical gifts as a part of his game too, because he was so physically gifted that he was able to play both ways consistently in college. He was a dynamite punt returner early in his career. And even for a time with the Green Bay Packers, when he arrived there as well, he was as physically gifted as anybody else in the secondary. He was one of those players that was so athletic that he looked like he was moving at a different speed than everybody else. And in a weird sort of way, almost slower than everybody else, moving slowly and yet blowing people away on the field too. Rare sort of ability there. That wasn't the same as with Nick Collins though, because with Woodson, since he was always so close to the ball, you could see his plays kind of develop almost on TV. You could see when he was baiting a quarterback into a throw. Nick Collins playing so incredibly deep and utilizing his incredible speed was the opposite. He never knew where he was on TV, except he knew he was back there somewhere. And after watching him for a few years with the Packers, you could anticipate the sort of plays where he would be about to make a play. The deep shot that holds up in the air just a little bit too long. And suddenly there's Nick Collins swooping in from just out of frame at an incredible rate of speed, making the interception, and he is headed back the other way. The pinnacle example of that, of course, is his interception return in the Super Bowl. Howard Green brings his massive arm down on Ben Roethlisberger just as he releases the pass, and you can see the ball wobble up in the air. And I can remember watching that on TV, kind of go up into the into the domed sky there in Dallas and thinking, Nick Collins is back there somewhere. And sure enough, as the ball comes down, there he is tapping his toes along the sideline and turning the ball upfield, eventually ending up in the end zone in the Super Bowl. Big plays when it mattered most. To bring it full circle, I wanted to conclude by talking about Reggie White. Because if I think back on my time as a fan of the Green Bay Packers, he is my first favorite player. As a really, really young Packers fan, it was more than thinking... Like, this guy has otherworldly abilities, or this guy is like a, a demigod on the field. For a young, young John Meerdink in Cedar Grove, Wisconsin, watching Reggie White on the field, there was almost the semi-blasphemous thought, this guy might be God. Like, this guy has that kind of ability. And it was like he stepped out of almost a fantasy novel. He was just so big and so strong and so powerful. And you could see, I don't know if you can ever call another professional athlete afraid, but you could see the intimidation that other people had when he lined up across from him, from them. The linemen, it seemed, were in their stance differently. And he had such that distinctive stance, the right hand down on the ground, the left hand up on his knee, kind of elbow cocked back. 
you'd almost think it was lackadaisical, but it was just him being this big grizzly bear of a human kind of contorting himself in the only way he could get down in a three-point stance. And just coming off the ball with the power and strength that he had, it's that sort of thing that makes you fall in love with a game like football. Because it is, it's not a nice sport. It's a violent game. It's a dangerous game. And when you watch players like Reggie White play this violent, dangerous game with power and strength and and violence, inflicting it on other people, but being someone who loved other people too, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's going to make a fan out of just about anyone. And thinking back on those players, those moments, those things like that, that's the sort of thing that, that keeps me coming back even in seasons when not everything is going perfectly. Because there's always the chance that one of those players could be developing before your eyes too. I'm not saying Christian Watson is that sort of player. I'm not saying Zach Tom is that sort of player. I'm not saying that any of these young guys are that sort of player. But you know what? I do know this for sure. Sooner or later, another one of those kind of players is going to come along. And it's important to be ready and waiting and excited for when they do. Because that's just another chapter you get to add to your time as a Packers fan. And that is that is the fun part of all of this. Even in seasons where not everything is going great, seeing that next guy develop into the, you remember that guy when he did this against that team sort of moment? That's the stuff that makes this sport fun. In any case... I hope you have some players like that in your time with the Packers too because we haven't even touched on some of the the smaller time guys that maybe just had a play or a season or a game in there too. And maybe we'll do a little bit that of that next week as this bye week stuff continues. In the meantime, that's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.